Okay, welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have discussions with individuals who are building inclusive and accessible businesses or products, advocating for inclusion or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but rather amplify their voice and ideas so you can build more inclusive and accessible businesses as well. Uh, today, we're joined by John McKenzie, a husband, pastor, disability advocate, and probably much more that I'm looking forward to learning about. So, John, thanks for coming out to Lancaster and joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, so, ironically, 17 years ago today, right, yeah. uh, your life changed uh, pretty significantly. Uh, maybe how often do you think about that day and kind of what do you recall from it? I mean, the day itself, you know, um, it was a day really just like today is, you know, it was a summer day, beautiful. And, and I don't think about it often until the month comes and, you know, sneaks up on me. The longer out I get, the less I kind of remember it. Um, but I remember the whole day, I remember the accident, I remember uh, everything that happened. I can go into detail if you want on that. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to maybe give us a little bit of insight into, um, into how it happened and what the environment was like. Yeah. You know, I grew up just like, uh, any really, you know, average American kid, you know, had a lot of fun, did a lot of stupid stuff. And, um, it was just, August 9th, 2006 is when it happened. And a group of us were out skateboarding. Um, we ended up that night at our local McDonald's in Orange, Mass. And it was like, I don't know, around eight or so. And I was part-time landscaper at that time. And my mom called me, told me to come home. I didn't go home because I didn't want to, you know, miss out on uh, any of the fun stuff going down at the uh, McDonald's parking lot. <laughs> eight o'clock at night in Orange, Massachusetts. But uh, my friends asked me to go for a little less joy right around town. And, Said sure, hopped in the back seat. As we were pulling out of the McDonald's parking lot, another car full of kids pulled up next to us, asked the driver for my car if you want to race, turn left. Next thing I know, we're going 100 miles an hour in the opposite lane. There's a long straightaway when you leave McDonald's to the left. There's a corner at the end. And as we went around the corner, the car lost control. It spun about three times, rolled a bunch of times, went up a banking, up a tree. And when it landed, I was in the back seat behind the passenger and right next to the door. And so the door fell off. And when the car landed, the top half of my body was out of the car. The rest of my body was in the car. And the car landed sideways on my neck until it broke my neck. I remember pretty much the whole thing rolling through the air in the car. It was like this weird slow motion, like yeah. weightless feeling. Um, I remember waking up with the car on top of me. And everyone was just screaming. It was utter chaos, you know. And uh, thankfully, I was the only one that got hurt that night. Everyone uh, else climbed out of the sunroof without a scratch on them. And I remember being put in the ambulance and taken to a Athol hospital. And then I didn't know I was paralyzed at that point, you know. I never broke a bone or anything prior to that, surprisingly, with growing up racing motocross and all that stuff. Um, but I just, I thought my legs might have been broken. And... Uh, but then they shipped me in a helicopter to UMass in Worcester and everything gets fuzzy from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you still keep in touch with the other people that were in the accident or? It was kind of a weird scenario, you know, um, I was in the car with one of my childhood best friends and a bunch of other kids I was pretty close with. And after the accident, you know, everyone just kind of bailed, mm. you know, uh, I've talked to maybe them two or three times the last 17 years and you know when it first happened it was a really kind of jarring experience 
because, you know, I never, I was never the kind of, everyone handles this injury different, right? Everyone handles becoming disabled largely different. And I woke up with just the attitude of, you know, um, this is my life now. I'm going to let God use it for whatever he wants to. And I'm just going to keep pushing forward. So I never had a real depression state. And so I never understood why everyone like just bailed on me. You know, at 17, it's kind of a interesting thing to think about. You know, like I'm the same kid that I was mm -hmm. uh, six months ago. I'm just sitting down now, you know, but I still know. Do you hold any animosity towards I, any of them? Probably during the time I was a little frustrated, yeah. you know, like it was more along the lines of like, well, what's wrong with me? Mm. You know, the, that my friend who I was so close with don't come around anymore, you know, but I've way forgiven them. It's like, I always say, you know, when we got in the car that night, nobody was like, Hey, nobody really fun. Let's go paralyze John. You know, <laughs> it wasn't an intentional thing. We were just young kids mm. doing young kids thing. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah but yeah so that contact kind of it was strange yeah you know you're now our third guest that's had an sei and um there seems to be a similar theme at least in the first two jesse and tim where they kind of talked about how their life was better after their disability um or it changed them in a lot of positive ways can you identify maybe some ways in which your life improved after your sei oh yeah 100 percent. you know uh I always get asked, like, would I go back? If I could go back in time, yeah. would I, mm -hmm. right? And, I mean, yeah, would it be great to walk again and not deal with constant nerve pain and all the fun stuff that comes along with having an SCI? But everything I've learned over the years, how this accident has shaped me as a man, as a advocate, as a – just my whole mindset, you know, um, it's really been – it's been – I hate to say beneficial, yeah. but it has, yeah. you know? Yeah pre-injury you know my life surround was surrounded with partying you know i was pretty wild mm. very rebellious and uh after the accident you know it kind of screwed my head on straight a little bit yeah and it just it really taught me a lot about adversity and just you know pushing forward no matter what and it just made me so grateful to be alive you know because i i could not be here mm. you know yeah, um, yeah you talk about being able to walk again. That's another thing that seems to be a theme in the SEI world. Like, was that a goal initially with rehab? Yeah. See what I've discovered in this is um, there's usually two camps yeah. in the spinal cord world. There are people who, and there's no wrong way. I feel each camp, I'm not bashing one or the other, but there's usually either people who are focused on walking again, you know, they want to do everything they can to, to walk again. Mm -hmm. And that's their goal. They put everything into their rehab. They put everything into into that goal, right? Or there's people, the camp I fall into is walking again was never really a goal, but learning just to live my life as it's been given to me, you know, get more independent, um, just learn to live with this disability in a world that's not accessible really in the least, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've always been about, you know, just these are the cards I've been dealt yeah. and I'm going to try to push forward the best I can. Yeah. And I kind of had a different case where like when I was injured, I was so sick, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, um, there are people who are injured and like when I was in rehab, 
I don't think I went to more than like five sessions because like I couldn't, okay. you know, um, for the first five years of my injury, like it was really hard. Okay. You know, um, I left rehab on a stretcher to go home. Mm. <laughs> I couldn't even sit up, okay. but I kept passing out Okay, and it was, it was really hard. Do you want to recount and maybe detail some of that rehab process? Yeah. So, um, when I got hurt, you know, I was taken to ICU and I was six weeks in the intensive care unit, which is longer than most stay in okay. for that time. And I was on a vent and they did pretty good there. And then they shipped me to Boston Medical Center. They used to have a spinal cord wing up there. They don't anymore. And when I got there, it was still, you know, I was, I was so sick. I was on the vent. I couldn't sit up. Just getting me, you know, to raise my head up in bed was a, a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. I had a lot of blood pressure issues. Okay. And so every time they tried to take me to therapy, <laughs> I would either pass out on my therapist or throw up on my therapist. And it, it my therapy experience was terrible. No fault to my PTs, yeah. but just to how sick mm. that I was. What do you think was causing that? It was just... It was like one thing after the other, you know, tons of infections, respiratory issues, trying to get off the ventilator. I was on that for about four and a half months. And uh, it was, it was just straight up chaos. Yeah. What was the ultimate thing that got you discharged or at like, at what point did they decide that you were ready to go home? It got to be in December. So I was hurt August 9th. I left rehab on December 11th, I think it was. And I wasn't ready to go home. Yeah. But I think they could see that being in the hospital that long was starting to take a toll on my mental health. Yeah. And so they were like, we're just going to, we're going to move forward and get you sent home. And thankfully I have, since day one, I have had a very strong support system mm-hmm. with my family. And so, you know, they knew that I would be taken great care of. And so then I went home, had a lot of home PT, but that really didn't accomplish too much either. Uh, I spent some time, which was helpful. About a year or two later, I went to Shriners in Philadelphia. They had like a six to eight week boot camp for spinal cord injured people. I was a little healthier then. And so that helped a good little bit, you know, just getting my bearings. Yeah. What kind of led you to turn a corner? Uh, You said like you were really sick right after. Like when did things start trending upwards? It wasn't until about five years out. Okay. No, I I was just, I was in and out of the hospital so much for those first five years and i had a really gnarly staph infection in 2010 ish it was in my hip and um that almost killed me you know it took a ton of surgeries to get it all cleaned out and it seems like after that um things just slowly started to get better and in the meantime during this first five years of horrendous health issues you know i I never stopped pushing forward you know, a year after my accident, I re-got my license. I started driving again. Um, I always just kept kept trying to set little goals, even though they were like, like I always wanted to be in a manual chair. You know, I said, if I had two arms, I'm going to use them the best I can with my injury. And so just like I'd go for pushes for the best I can, which is maybe around a parking lot or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just these little goals that 
for an able-bodied person seemed like nothing, but to me, it's like climbing Mount Everest, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, those were your goals instead of walking. Instead of putting all your effort into walking, yes. it was getting back to being able to exist in your environment. Yes, yeah, just to be able to uh, live a somewhat normal life. Yeah, you know? yeah. So you're C6? Yes. C6, yeah. So for people who don't know the levels of SEI, how does that like manifest with like gross motor and fine motor function? Yeah, so... um a lot of times people get really confused when I tell them I'm a quadriplegic because mm. they can see me moving yeah, my see arms. Yeah. You see me fidget quite a bit. Yeah. That's from my nerve pain. We can yeah. talk about that after <laughs> too. But uh, uh, so, yeah, if I had broken my neck at like C1 or C2, 3, or 4, I would probably not have like any movement, maybe some shoulders or mm. things like that. But because I broke at C5, C6, I'm able to have biceps, have biceps in both arms. I have a tricep in my left arm, which I don't have in my right arm. Okay. And I have like real strong wrist function. And uh, so that's about it. I'm paralyzed from the chest line down. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's an impairment in all four limbs as a quad. And uh, any yeah. grip strength through the fingers? And No, yeah. I don't have any grip strength in my fingers, but you know, we can use tenodesis, which is a very fancy word for uh, <laughs> when you bend your wrist, your thumb, will kind of automatically reach and it'll grasp to your pointer finger. It's okay. hard to hear that through a voice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, what was like the, what were their OT and PT interventions that kind of got you that function? Or is that what you had initially? And that's just kind no, of. For me, everything is, I have been the same, but just stronger. Yeah. You know, I got injured with all this function that I have now. It's nothing really. Um, it's just the everyday life of being paralyzed. Yeah. I've gotten stronger. Yeah. One of the biggest, most important things that I was able to use and that helped me massively was YouTube. Mm. And that's why I love social media so much. Yeah. You know, because I remember, I remember after I was injured, you know, uh, like I said, I didn't have a really good rehab experience. And so I would go on YouTube. And I would see all these quads, my level, and showing how they live their lives, how they get dressed, how they transfer. And that's really what, that's really what helped me too, was just, you know, just seeing other people with my similar injury, be able to do things I didn't think were possible of doing. That just, it gave me so much motivation and hope to see that, you know, there are people out there who are taking care of themselves the best way they can and, you know, learning how to be independent and, that was really, that's what I call like a lot of my rehab was through YouTube, yeah, you know, yeah. and that's why I think social media is, you know, like everything, it has some massive downfalls, mm-hmm. but it also has some really positive things out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the remote fitness is obviously became more popular with COVID uh, and remote rehab. Um, and I don't know if it's, it's definitely not a entire replacement for in-person, but like you said, like for people... There's a lot of people that don't have the means of getting to a gym or getting to a rehab hospital. And uh, so it's not the importance of kind of making it accessible online is pretty big. Uh, you mentioned nerve pain. Kind of how do you maybe how do you manage that and how does it manifest? Oh, yeah. Nerve pain is uh, 
like if I had a if I had a choice between could you walk again <laughs> and keep the nerve pain or stay with your injury and not have nerve pain, yeah. I'd be paralyzed all day. Yeah. Yeah. Nerve pain is pro- for myself. It's probably the hardest thing that I have to deal with because, mm-hmm. like, 24-7, my body is just burning constantly. Mm-hmm. And as you can see it when you're in person with me, you know, constantly wiggling and twisting. Yeah. It's just from – that's usually from my pain, okay. you know, and that's kind of just one way I kind of cope with it is to stay moving. Yeah. Are you able to sleep through the night? Yeah, a lot better than I used to. Yeah. You know, there used to be times where I'd just be awake for like two nights at a time. And mm-hmm. that just takes a massive toll yeah. on your mental health, Everything. your yeah. physicalness. It's just, but yeah, I mean, I've been on medicine for it, but it doesn't really do much. Yeah. 17 years out, you know, um, what I've come to realize is, you know, distraction is a huge thing for myself, you know, yeah. staying active and. And whether that's playing a, a video game for a little while, just anything to get your mind off yeah. of, off of your pain. Are there any surgical interventions or no? I've heard of some things like spinal blocks and things like that, but uh, I don't know how well they they work exactly. Yeah, yeah, wonder. Um, before your accident, did you have a career in mind, and then kind of maybe how did you get into this career that you're in now? Yeah, so pre-injury, you know. Um, I grew up racing dirt bikes my whole life. And, uh, you know, when you have a sport that you love so deeply and passionately, you want to do that for the rest of your life, Mm -hmm. you know, so that was the goal. Um, I got to a decently high level with that. And, um, you know, in my 17 year old mind, I thought I was gonna be a professional racer (laughs) and, uh, that didn't pan out obviously, but, um, again, going back to my rebelliousness, I dropped out of high school at 15 years old, Okay, left school. Um, cause I just, it, it just wasn't my thing, you know, so some people's things that it wasn't mine, that's for sure. And um, so I got a job landscaping and uh, I did that up until my accident. Um, but I had no real like career goals or really anything. I was just kind of living day by day, mm-hmm. you know, week by week. And it wasn't until after my accident that, you know, as soon as I woke up in the intensive care unit, you know, I just I felt that this happened for a reason. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, went to church on Sundays and and, and all that stuff. But it, it was never really real to me until my accident. And uh, that's when my mind started shifting. I just, I said, you know, I just want to use this um, for whatever God wants for me, you know. And I had no idea what that looked like at 17 years old laying in the intensive care unit. But um, I just, I knew I wanted to help people as high school students, so pastoring wasn't in my mind frame yet at all um, but then after my injury I started going to church again and and I just I wanted to serve any way I could and uh, a couple of years later I met with people from uh, the Johnny Erickson Tata I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with her, Johnny and Friends um, they have a foundation where they help so many disabled people do a lot of cool things and I met with one of their representatives and I asked them, like, what, what should I do? What's my next steps? You know, I want to do something to help people. And they kind of pushed me in the direction of, why don't you go back to school? You know, again, hated school, <laughs> left at 15 years old. <laughs> that definitely wasn't out, wasn't in my plan anyways, but I ended up going back to school. I got my college degree. Um, I went for ministry and, uh, and, 
became a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was that like? Because there was probably what seven or eight years between dropping out of high school and going back into college. Yeah, that was years. that was weird. Yeah, me. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I did all my classes online okay. again because I was yeah. so sick and yeah. everything. But that in itself takes a lot of self discipline. Yeah. To, uh, to do that. Did you find college to be a much better experience though? Because it was something that you were passionate about. Like yes. sometimes high school just isn't yeah, suitable. Yeah, I, was, for I think I was just lost. Yeah. In high school, you know, like it just, this had more of a goal in mind, you know, like I got to get through these years to be able to do what I want to do. Yeah. And um, so I did enjoy doing my classes. It gave me something to focus on. It gave yeah. me a different, like I, I realized this time around that, you know, education is pretty important, you know, and uh, it's a, it's a blessing to be able to, not everyone can do that. You yeah. Know, so I wouldn't identify as a deeply religious person. Me and my wife and I got married. Uh, in a Catholic church, yeah. and I understand the importance of that as a sacrament. Um, and we went to church growing up. But um, mm. do you think living like uh, living the way I do, I guess, or like the work that I do, and like the care that I uh, like give towards people, is that like a manifestation of religion as opposed to just like weekly church attendance? I mean, is there a way to to be religious without going to church? Well, I mean, that's a a loaded question. <laughs> I mean, in, in my beliefs, you know, I believe that God designed us to to be um, in fellowship with other Christians. Yeah. You know, I think the work you do is is wonderful, and I think that's a God given talent mm. and a, a God given gift to have that desire to, to to help other people. You know, you see that all through Scripture, right? Um, I do very much believe in the importance of church attendance, you yeah. know, and not that going to church doesn't mean you're a Christian, right. <laughs> you know, no more than me sitting in a garage makes me a car. That was almost what I had a little bit of trouble with was just going to church, but not always understanding yeah. what I was there for or yeah. what I was listening to. Yeah. Uh, so it didn't feel like it was adding a ton to. And that's totally understandable, yeah. well, you know, and um I think it depends, like, for myself, like, say high school wasn't a good fit. You know, I didn't I didn't get anything from it. You know, if you're going to church and you're not leaving with something that's applicable to your life, it's it can feel like you're just there listening to a a bunch of nonsense sometimes. Yeah. yeah. What's your what's your process for preparing a sermon? I process it takes me about 40 hours or so to get my messages done. Oh. And so I, I dive pretty deep in there, you know, but my whole motto is, you know, um, open the Bible, teach the Bible, and then sit down and shut up. You know, mm -hmm. um, we are kind of a no frills kind of congregation. You know, I, uh, I keep my messages around 25 minutes and uh, I just go through each verse, pick it apart and get the meaning of what the original language said and, what it meant for their hearers in that time and then how it's applicable to us today, mm. you know? So that's, that's very important. Yeah. You know, to, uh, Was it an acquired skill? Cause obviously giving a sermons, public speaking, do you feel like you've improved a lot over the years in terms of how you deliver sermons? I would definitely say so. So again, when I was first injured, I knew I wanted to help people. You know, I knew I figured my story had some value in it to even help, uh, my main goal at that time was speaking to high schools and driver's ed programs. Yeah. And when I got my first opportunity to go to a school and share my story, 
it was 2008. I get up in front of these kids, the small classroom, you know, I froze. <laughs> I didn't say a word. Mm -hmm. I couldn't speak. I had to leave. It was a mess. Yeah. I left there going, well, that's not for me. <laughs> yeah. I'm done, yeah. you know? And then three years later, pastor of the church I was attending asked me if I'd be willing to share my story. And I was like, oh man, I, I can't do that. You know, was, there's no way, but I just, I didn't want to say no. So I did it. And from that point on, you know, it's gotten easier and easier and easier. Yeah. Um, but it all, it all depends. You know, I speak weekly. Um, I speak sometimes more weekly. I come here today and I'm nervous here. You know? <laughs> Hopefully I'm not too nervous. No, no, you're, you're a great host. And it's just the, the it, public speaking is nerve wracking. Yeah. You know? yeah, it always is. Even I mean, in the same lens, like me preparing for these, um, I'm trying to play the conversation in my head or at least think about what I want to talk about. Like I almost didn't want to mention that religion piece because yeah. I don't have the chops to really have a thorough conversation about it. So it's like, uh, what should I mention? What should I not? And I have all these different things that go through my head, but then it's like finding ways to articulate it within the flow of a conversation is sometimes tough. Yeah. Uh, and we, we do put a good amount of time into like preparing for all these episodes and, and doing research about the guests and stuff. But um, do you consider it motivational speaking or do you have thoughts on like motivation, uh, motivational speaking as a whole? See, um, I kind of separate the two yeah. from the like from what I do at church on Sunday and then say what I do when I go to Monty Tech and speak to the driver's ed programs. You know, I would say that is when I speak at the high schools and whatnot, it's usually a more motivation, but motivation to make the right choices in life and, and to not, you know, I speak a lot about safety and making smart choices and how each choice, you know, whether you realize it or not affects your future, you know? So I do, I, I feel like I give them some motivation and try to help them and guide them into realizing that, you know, don't mess up your life so young, you know, you got a, a lot ahead of you. And I truly believe that, you know, you can really do whatever you want to do if you put the time into it. Yeah. And like I always say, I'm not saying you're going to be president of the United States, mm -hmm. but crazier things have happened. So yeah. maybe, maybe so. <laughs> I wonder if like, so you're, you're encouraging people to not do dangerous things that could hurt themselves, which is obvious, but you say like mess up their lives and in some ways your life got better after your yeah. accident. So not that that's the lesson that you would want to communicate to someone, get a spinal cord injury, your life yeah. might improve. But yeah. um, is there ever any like friction between those messages or do you ever relay the positives of your injury? Oh, I definitely will relay the positives. Yeah. You know, it's, it's usually more of motivation with like a, an underlying uh, yeah. that you don't you don't want to take the route that I took. You yeah. know, I'd rather not take the route that yeah. I took. Um because you can come to grips with improving your life without yes the injury. Yeah. You know, I would have rather, you know, learned all the lessons that I learned now without having to deal with the pain, the suffering and right. all the heartache that comes along with spinal cord injury. Yeah. You know? Because no matter how much we try and sugarcoat it, you know, this life is hard. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not easy. Yeah. You know, some of us may make it look easy, but there is still a lot of weight to carry around on a daily basis. I'm a 34-year-old man that does stuff during the week that no 34-year-old man should have to do, yeah. you know, whether that's bathroom stuff yeah. or other stuff that 
comes along that you don't see, yeah. you know? So I try to motivate these kids, but just motivate them to make smart choices yeah. Yeah. in their, in their life, especially when they get behind the wheel. Yeah. You know, I remember when I first got my license, I was, just, I was wild, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, it's not worth it. Yeah. You know? We we typically ask some of our, our guests with disabilities of like their thoughts on the inspiration narrative. Like, do you ever get people that say that you're inspirational and kind of what emotions does that evoke or like, Oh man, I get that all the time. <laughs> yeah. I can't go to the grocery store. <laughs> someone thinking I get a box of Cheerios off the shelf there or something. Yes. But um, in some ways there are people who get really offended by mm. it, you know? Um, and I totally understand that. And in, in a lot of ways I feel the same, you know, I mean, I, we're just living our lives, you know, we're not here to be an inspiration for you mm-hmm. unless it's in the setting of say a motivational speech or something like mm-hmm. that. But um, yeah, I get that all the time. And, and, but I do know that a lot of people say that like in the grocery store or at church or anywhere, you know, um, a lot of them, it comes from a good place. Yeah, it's always well-intentioned. You know? It's well-intentioned a lot of times, even though there are times where it's kind of offensive. Yeah. Right. So I try to give them grace, you know, mm-hmm. because like if you don't live this life, if you're not in the field, say you're in yeah. and they don't really know. Yeah. You it's know? like they don't even know what else to say. Like they don't yeah. even know how to start the conversation. Yeah. Uh, for some reason. I'm not sure what that reason is, but yeah, it's it just, is common. there's a lot of people who I just don't think know how to handle when they see someone so different yeah. from themselves. Yeah. You know, it's like they look at myself or people like me and it's like, they're just so, I don't like to say it, but it's true, weirded out by it in a sense. Yeah. You know, um, they just, they don't know how to, how to act. Yeah. So when we think of like what has to be done to make gyms more inclusive and accessible or really any business or environment, it's kind of like normalizing the inclusion of people with disabilities and yeah. just not to like see beyond the wheelchair, not to ignore the fact that you have a disability, yeah. but just to view it, I guess, maybe as another characteristic of yourself as an individual yeah yeah i mean i agree with that as well you know i mean because it's like and then there's a whole other if you go to the whole other end and there are people who are like well i don't even see your disability yeah and at the same time that's not entirely correct to say either Mm -hmm. you know because when you when you go to that far then you're like just dismissing the the struggle, the ableism, the uh, yeah. the lack of accessibility we face every day. And, mm-hmm. and so there, there's like a balance there. Just in my opinion, just I'm John, treat me that way. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and uh, but it's again, I don't fault a lot of people like some people, some people might, you yeah. know, because like I maybe might not know what to say to someone in this position if I wasn't in this myself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Maybe kind of expanding on that point, we can talk a little bit about etiquette. Um, how do you feel about the term disabled versus maybe some of the more politically correct quote unquote terms like differently abled? Yeah. Um, again, there's different camps for that yeah. as well. But a lot of myself and most everyone that I'm in contact with in the disability community who has a disability what I've discovered is nine times out of 10, they want to be called disabled. Yeah. You know, cause like when you use terms like differently abled or, or things of that nature, um, it can often feel like you're trying to minimize the disability aspect. And you're trying to make, you're trying to make disabled less offensive 
in your mind. That's how I feel anyways. Like we're disabled and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we don't have to call it other names to make yourselves more comfortable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I almost, I've read, I've read about it as almost a strategy for someone without a disability, like you said, to just feel more comfortable or like feel better about themselves for using this different phrase. But there's some people whose entire model of inclusion revolves around person first language or terms like differently abled and in some ways but then i see the disability community that's like oh no we hate those things so it's like so it's tough to relay so if if i'm teaching a new personal trainer a new fitness professional how to work with someone with a disability there's so many nuances Mm. it's tough to make blanket statements like this is how you communicate with someone with a disability what kind of what advice would you give so if you if you went into a gym for the first time and you were about you were ready to work with a personal trainer, what would you want them to ask you or how would you want to be treated? So if I put myself in that scenario, I come into your gym, right? And I would obviously this goes without saying, want to be treated just like any other member that comes in. Um, and I think the worst thing that a person can do is assume right? If say a, a, a trainer comes up to myself and just grabs my chair, you know, and starts helping without asking first, you know, I, I understand that their heart is probably in the right place, you know, because they see someone that might look like they need help, but you always got to ask first, right? Like, um, hey, my name is, I don't know what this trainer's name was, Trainer Todd, okay? Uh, trainer Todd comes up to me and says, hey, my name's Todd. Um, uh, and I want to introduce myself and, you know, you just start a conversation like a normal person would. And then I would want that person to say, um, I don't want to assume that you need help, but if there is anything I can do to make your time here more accessible and I can be of any assistance, please don't be afraid to ask. Yeah. You know? So it's assuming, it's assuming competency and then having just an open line of communication with yeah. what needs or what supports they need. I think um, most people can tell, when someone's being genuine, you know, and I think that goes a long way. Like not everyone's going to be able to word things perfectly. No. You know, I might, I might be offended by differently abled and then you might get two other people who prefer to be called differently abled or something like that. Um, so I think, I think we can, I think we're pretty smart at seeing genuineness, you know, like um, this person just wants to help. Yeah. You no, know, but definitely, my biggest thing is not to assume you need help, you know, just, just ask and be respectful about it. Yeah. What type of questions are kind of off limits and what questions do you not mind being asked? Myself, you can ask me anything. Mm. No, but I know there are people who are more easily, um, I guess you might want to, I guess you'd say offended. Um, who don't really just even want to be bothered when they come into a place. I just, again, I think the, the most appropriate thing to do for a physical therapist would be like, is if, if there is um, any way that I can help you, you know, please just communicate with me what you need and I'll, I'll help you. Yeah. Like, what are your needs, mm-hmm. you know, and how can I better help you um, get done what you need done? And that's why we like, we try to demystify, it's not the word, but we try to lower the perceived barrier of entry for fitness professionals to like more inclusive options. Cause I think sometimes people think it's like a highly complex, you need 
all of this advanced schooling. You need all this advanced equipment. Um, when in reality, I would hope that every gym finds ways to be more accessible, just like we call it like incremental universal design, just like slowly making changes yeah. that improve the accessibility of something. Uh, but oftentimes, like you said, it's just like the genuineness of the staff and the conversations they're willing to have with people. Um, understanding your unique needs in the same way that we're trying to understand our uh, neurotypical adults' unique needs or our high school and collegiate athletes' unique needs. It's, the, I guess, the presence of a disability just becomes another thing to consider when writing a workout. But Because yeah. like, if you think about it, like if you go up to an able-bodied person and you ask them what they need help for, and it's, it's really just the same thing. You know, you're there to help that person, whether they have a disability or not. You know, just try not to um, assume that they, you know, need certain things that, and a lot of times for myself, what drives me nuts and happens so often is like when people talk to us like we're children. Yeah. And that happens a lot. Yeah. You know, and so it's just about being respectful, treating that disabled person really no different than you would treat an able-bodied member in the gym. But at the same time, you know, just ask with respect and genuineness, like, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you need help. Yeah. You know, what do you think um, needs to be changed is a question we usually ask people uh, towards the end of the conversations. Like, what do you think needs to be changed to make gyms or the fitness industry as a whole more inclusive and accessible? And again, it depends. You know, I mean, I think just like today, you know, like how you guys have the buttons outside, mm. the flat entrance, you know, it's so easy for me to get into, right? Um, a lot of gyms and places don't have that. Yeah. You know, they have doors that are like, I couldn't even open on my own if I, if I tried to. Yeah. And um, again, no place is perfectly accessible, right? There's going to be a learning curve and, and there's going to be, like you said, incremental changes, right? Um, but I think for fitness professionals, you know, listen to the disabled community, you know, and really try to hear how you can help their individual needs. You know, try to make things more accessible, try to keep in mind the space between equipment for wheelchair users and um, even just the, the level of certain equipment things and, and, and stuff like that, you yeah. know? Yeah. That's why we like, we wanted to um, trim some portions of this conversation to include in the, in the content that we teach uh, because I've always liked your approach to etiquette that you put out on social media. Um, so we'll, We'll plug that your your Instagram handle. It's the Wheelie Life Official. The Wheel Life Official. The Wheel Life Official. Yeah. And um, what's that platform been like for you in terms of like growing it, and why'd you start it? I mean, it's been it's been great. Like I said, you know, social media has always played a a big role in my life, starting with YouTube stuff and and seeing how much they helped me. And you know, I kind of just started that Instagram on a whim because I was bored one day mm -hmm. and I just wanted to be able to. I wanted to be able to share my real feelings about disability and not have to filter myself. And, and I just wanted to share the things I've learned and hopefully help some other newly injured patient or person who's been hurt 20 years and just needs some encouragement, you know? And so I, I started that one day and, and um, I just try to put out content that's, that's real, you know, that's, um that's, directed at people like myself, you know, but at the same time, someone who's an able-bodied um, 
fitness instructor like yourself can can read and think. Yeah. Oh, okay, that that makes sense. I'm gonna try to implement that. And, yeah, absolutely. And learn from that. Yeah. You know. Do you plan out content, or do you usually just like identify a problem or something that happened in your life and think to yourself like, oh, I should share that. When we really started, when I really started growing and things were kind of happening, and I was getting, you know, I don't have a massive following or anything, but like a a little bit, but like I really was super diligent you know yeah i did like i had certain days i would record my reels and then certain times i would talk about disability history and um, i would schedule those posts in advance but as we've kind of gone with everything um sometimes it's planning out a week in advance other times i just wake up in the morning and <laughs> something strikes me I'm like you know what? i'm gonna talk about that i'm gonna rant about this a little bit and yeah. uh we'll, we'll make a post about it it's awesome can you um can you maybe plug some products or businesses that you're familiar with that are either making like good products for people with disabilities or oh yeah doing something you know, use? I got a lot of really good fr- cool thing about the disability community is it's kind of tight knit even though we really all live across like the country from each other yeah. some of my closest friends um, they're like so brilliant you know um, you've probably seen abilities on um, Instagram so that's a billet. T and then the word ease, right? Yeah, it's ability. It's a B ability. <laughs> yeah, we can plug him. Or yeah, include a link. No, he's great, and uh, he just—I don't know where his mind goes, but he just comes up with the coolest three D printed stuff to yeah. uh, make life easier for us. And yeah. it's it's pretty cool. You know, there are people who, at the same time, don't like using adaptive equipment, and that's fine too. Yeah. And at the beginning of my injury, I hated it. You uh, know, I didn't yeah. want to be any different from anyone else, but. As I've grown as a person and gotten more comfortable with my disability, I just yeah. want to use anything that helps me. Yeah, that's probably an, that's yeah, that's an interesting topic because I have a a client post stroke who uh, seems to adopt that perspective where he doesn't want to use adaptive things, and I'm like, well, if it helps you do what you want to do, then it might be useful in the same way that yeah. I have to wear glasses to see yeah. and yeah. So, someone has to wear a hearing aid to hear like uh, sometimes the adaptive technology just allows you to do what you want to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that that's great. And I'm, I'm glad all those resources exist. Um, and I hope that I can have conversations with people like that and, and share those um, share what they're doing and share their, their experiences and what they've learned. Um, like I said, I mean, I, it's tough to put myself in a position of like teaching the course that I teach because I don't want to speak on your behalf or I don't want to speak on the community's behalf as a whole. Um, But I recognize that I might be in a position to bring some of this content to people. So it would be, um, it would be foolish for me to not at least do my best. And hopefully if we make mistakes or suggest something that's not important that people uh, have the grace to just, uh, see that it's always well intentioned so but that's why the, these podcast recordings have been great because um, it allows me to just have transparent conversations and kind of uh, work on the edges and work within the nuance um, of disability and uh, hopefully the people that take my course will also listen to these because they're great supplements for um, the more like exercise science related stuff that we teach but yeah. i think you guys are doing one of the most important things it's giving disabled people you know a platform to, yeah. to share because they might not go after or they might not find someone like you unless yeah. it's through um someone like that's already in the fitness space yeah. so uh hopefully we can kind of be that segue 
uh, to introduce them to, to people that can speak on the lift experience better. But John, it was a pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate you coming out from, uh, from Orange to Lancaster talking with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for letting me rant for a while. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the AdaptX podcast. Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about Adaptex, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptex.org. Until next Monday.